Good afternoon and welcome. I'm your host, as always, The Pody. It is Friday, April 9th, 2021. I'm back after a two-week hiatus. I think it was only a two-week hiatus. Um, It's been a while. A lot going on in my life right now. Of course, we had Easter, so happy Easter to everybody. A belated Easter, I I might add. Um, We had NCAA March Madness conclude uh, with both the men's and the women's tournaments. We had my New York Jets making, in my what is my opinion, to be one of the worst trades ever, getting rid of Sam Darnold after three years, three failed uh, head coaches, if you will. You had Todd Bowles and then Adam Gase for two of those years. He's started in, what, 30 games or so, had never had a chance, zero weapons around him, worst receiving core in the league in really his first two years. Just a, a total disaster. We'll get into that later. Um, we'll talk about the national championship games, which we, we, we are just mind-boggling in, 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 in my in my opinion, uh, just disgusting uh, way to conclude the season. Uh, what else we've got going on? Uh, we've got, y- you name it, we've got the Masters uh, underway. That started yesterday. Um, I've got the updated uh, standings right now. Day one, there were not many uh, low scores. Of course, you remember back in November with the COVID stuff, we had the Masters in 2020 back in November when Dustin Johnson won at like minus 20 or 22 or whatever it was. Nobody is going to be in the minus 20s. Really, I don't think anybody gets to the minus teens. Um, Justin Rose, I believe, is leading at like minus seven, or he was after the first day, and there was like five guys under par. It is not that type of day. I saw one guy, Siwoo Kim something or other, 25-year-old Korean kid. He like four-putted on a hole, and then he broke his club. My dad sent me an article um, about the greens because I was – I was wondering why the greens didn't look like they were in great shape because they're getting really dried out and they're looking almost purplish on TV and they talked about that. And then one guy, um, it's slipping my mind who the guy was, but he actually, and I've never seen this in my in, in my life, and I've been around golf a lot. I've played a lot of golf um, over this past break. I was on spring break from work off for a week. I played three rounds of golf and never in my life have I putted a ball on the putting green, off the green, and into the water, and a guy did it, and that guy's name would be, uh, who was it? Let me see here. I know I've got it here. I got it here somewhere. Hold on. It's just incredible to see how somebody could do that. Uh, Burned Weisberger had an eagle putt on 15 and put it in. In fact, let me play that for you guys here to listen to this. The announcers can't even believe it. I was always under the... Well, look at this. This is a massive miscue. Hang on. Hang on. Oh, dear. He's going to put it off. Yeah, let me stop that uh, from starting up again. Literally, couldn't the announcer couldn't believe it. He's like, he's going to put it into the water. It, it's just incredible. So uh, the greens are absolutely light. Uh, lightning. I know Sergio Garcia, when he came off the course yesterday, he said he felt like he just finished a 12-round bout with Mike Tyson um, 
or no, I don't think he said Mike Tyson, whatever, uh, Evander Holyfield or something, right? I think Kucher, Matt Kucher made the reference to uh, Mike Tyson. But either way, it's just been incredible, um, and, and there's a lot to go over, but I do want to keep this one short because I've got to get some sleep. We've got a doubleheader softball um, against apparently the number five junior college in the country. So um, our girls have got their work cut out for us, got an early start tomorrow. Hopefully the rain uh, stays at bay so we could get these games in, but I'm excited um, for the rematch. We already played this team once. It didn't go over so well, but uh, I'm excited, and we're you know we're a uh, few games into the season now, and I, I think we got a good chance um, to upset them. But anyway, let's dive right in without further ado, and let's just talk a little bit of um, – we'll start really with – the women's um, champ- NCAA championship game. So, of course, in the finals, we have Stanford against Arizona. First time ever in the women's tournament that we have two Pac-12 teams facing off for the national title. Um, I read a little bit about Tara Vanderveer. She actually, I want to say she coached against um, the head coach for Arizona while she was a player. Okay, Um, so that's interesting. And Dawn Staley, who she just beat in the semis in the Final Four, um, she also coached her when she was a player, coached against her, and then coached her for Team USA back in the 90s. Um, So just incredible. Uh, All-time winningest women's basketball coach past Pat's, the late, great Pat Summit. But um, I don't want to veer off course. Let's talk about the game. Um I liked Arizona's chances going in. Of course, they beat number one seeded UConn. Everybody's talking about uh, Paige uh, Beckers and and how great she is, player of the year as a freshman, first to blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm sorry. She might be a good, you know, shooter. She looked terrible. Arizona ran everything but the kitchen sink at her defensively, and she looked like a shell of herself. She looked lost. I will admit I haven't watched a whole lot of her this year. I know one other time that I really tuned in and watched, I at first wasn't really all that impressive. She reminds me almost in the sense of like a Kevin Durant or a James Harden where she's really going to 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 get her you know, just take a bunch of shots and, and get have her way uh, and get all the touches. Everything's going to run through her. And in this game, she didn't know what to do. She was getting the ball. She was clearly frustrated. Now, I get it. She's only a freshman, but she was making, uh, like, mental miscues and, and easy mistakes, turnovers, and, and they bogged her down. She was throwing up runners, like, off, off the wrong foot. I mean, you're a righty. You don't throw the ball running off your right foot. You throw it off your left foot. And she, so she was just a mess. She did end up finishing with probably close to 20 points or something like that. But um, it was Ari McDonald or Ari McDonald, not 100% sure how to say that. Uh, the, the small little lefty point guard for Arizona, Dynamite. I tell you, when you're women's basketball, um, if you have a small speedster, and I say small comparatively speaking to the other girls, you know, um, but she was fast, she's quick, she could shoot it from three, she made everything happen. My dad equated her to like a, a James Harden as well. I'll use that analogy too because she's also a lefty. She could dribble, she, but she's so quick. And when you're that quick, you can get to the basket. You could step back for three, so dynamite there. Um, Arizona, little jitters to start this game. They were down um, double digits in actually both halves 
but they did claw their way back, okay? Um, unfortunately, this game came down to the wire. The final six seconds in Arizona, well, they they, they blew it. They lost the game 54-53. to 53. Uh, Obviously, this was Sunday night in uh, San Antonio. It was Haley Jones for... Uh, Stanford leading the way. She was named most outstanding player. She had 17 points, and that was actually the third time this season that Stanford beat Arizona. Of course, they play in the Pac-12. Beating any team three times in a season is extremely difficult, um, especially especially when it's in the uh, championship game of a grueling, grueling season. I saw some stat about Stanford. They spent like 100 nights on the road throughout this whole COVID season just trying to play games. There were some places that they were just begging um, to pl- to practice in high school gyms. There was one gym that they had only two glass backboards and the rest were made out of wood. They were just begging anywhere that they could go to get into a gym just to practice. And, and hey, I got to give it to them. Um they battled through the adversity and they got it done. A couple of one point wins. And, and you know, it's Tara Vanderveer's third national championship. She ties Kim Mulcahy um, for third most, of course, the Baylor coach um, for third most, of course, behind uh, Pat Summit and, of course, uh, Gino Oriema there. Um, uh, I spoke about Ari McDonald. She led the way for the Wildcats with 22. And, of course, she did help rally her team from those two double-digit deficits in both halves. Uh, After Arizona cut the lead to 51-50, I think there was about three and a half minutes left at that point. Um, Jones, Haley Jones, completed a huge, huge uh, three-point play on the other end to put the Cardinals ahead by one. Uh, Arizona's defense tightened. I don't know, Stanford really... Uh, lost their way on offense after that. They could not score, had zero field goals for the final two and a half minutes, uh, two minutes and 24 seconds to be exact. Excuse me. They forced, uh, Arizona did, forced a shot clock violation with six seconds remaining and the Cardinal leading by one. This sort of stuff always drives me nuts because I know you get complacent a lot of times and you want to run that shot clock down and then get one final shot. They couldn't even get the shot off. I think Stanford had a timeout. I would have used it there to get a better look and possibly go ahead two or even three if they hit the three in the corner or something like that on a kickout. But with the six seconds left, Arizona inbounded the ball to Ari McDonald, the smallest girl on the court, and she was sworn by three or four defenders. They really probably should have used her as a decoy or got a couple back screens, and maybe you know she would have been able to catch and dribble once or twice you know, or get something uh, running to the corner at least to get a shot off or maybe inbound it quick to her, get it back to the inbounder. Um, But it was botched badly. Arizona, I know, had a timeout. I'm almost certain Arizona had a timeout. As soon as that ball was inbounded, they should have called timeout um, and they would have been able to reset and get a better play off. Um so it was just disappointing. I would have liked to see um, Adia Barnes call a timeout there as soon as she inbounded. Because I can, I can see this stuff when I'm watching at home, and they have a better view on the, you know, when they're courtside coaching. As soon as a ball's inbounded, you could tell within the first second or two. Oh crap, we're screwed. The play's not going to work. You know, we're surrounded. Whatever. There was was would have still been time three, four seconds, whatever, to then call that timeout, 
okay, reset. We've got to figure something else out. Use her as a decoy now. Get it to somebody else and at least get a shot off. Instead, she's sworn by like three, four defenders, and she does her best. She just heaves it up, but it wasn't even really a shot. She was just like chucking it, and it was a brick, and uh, that's that's how they lose. Um and it's unfortunate because I was hoping that Arizona would get a better better look. You know, I like to see a good game, a good finish down to the wire. I hate when the team can never get even a shot off. Um, but like I said, uh, congrats to uh, Stanford and you know, kudos to Arizona too. They nobody gave them nobody gave them credit. Um, it's unfortunate too because uh, Rutgers, uh, my alma mater, they botched it in the first round against BYU. Otherwise, they would have played Arizona. I think in the second round, I would have liked to see that match up there because really, you know, you beat Arizona, then it could have been Rutgers marching through to the Final Four, possibly beating UConn. Who knows, right? And the, I could say the same thing about the men if they would have beat Houston. Blew that lead with four minutes left. They would have been in the final four. So it is what it is, but uh, that's life, and it goes on, and so will we. Okay, next up, you had Monday night, the number one seeded and undefeated Gonzaga Bulldogs facing off against fellow number one seed Baylor. It seems to me like these two teams have been on a collision course for about two years, even last year when these two were ranked atop uh, the country uh, uh, standings, the AP poll. Um, Gonzaga, of course, that crazy game against UCLA, one of the best Final Four finishes you will ever see, really one of the best college basketball games you'll ever see. UCLA from uh, last four in having to uh, play that play-in game against Michigan State, which, mind you, went to overtime. It was on so late I couldn't even stay up to watch because I had work the next morning. And they beat Michigan State in overtime, make this incredible run all the way to the Final Four and take the best team in the country, the undefeated Gonzaga Bulldogs, to the final possession of the game. And it was a Jalen Suggs heave from half-court three that, that he just banked in. Um, to win it, and oh my God, I have to announce this, defending champ, breaking news, defending champion Dustin Johnson misses the cut at the Masters after bogeying three of the final four holes on Friday to finish five over. The projected cut line was uh, was three over. I'm praying that moved a little bit to maybe four because I have Matt Kuchar, who is at the plus four mark, and I'm in a master's pool where you pick four guys. They each have a value, and you can't. Uh, it has to add up to a hundred or less. And he's my one of my four guys. And if I don't have him going into the weekend, I basically have no shot to win. So that would be unfortunate. But I'll get to the golf in just a little bit. All right, back to Gonzaga Baylor. Of course, Mark Few looking for that elusive. Uh, title lost a few years ago to North Carolina in the finals before that they really never made it to the finals then you've got Baylor on the flip side and Scott Drew who when he took over Baylor people told him do not come to Baylor do not take this job first three years he wins just 21 games and, and they showed the press conference back in 2003 when he was hired and he said he's not He's, he's not being hired. He's not coming here to win a March Madness game or, or, or to make the Sweet 16. No, he's coming here to win a championship, and the work has paid off. He's lucky enough to have to have uh, been given that length, lengthy, uh, you know, that long of a leash 
to be able to build that program, but they saw they saw the value that he brought there after bringing that uh, that program from the doldrums all the way up to one of the elites in college basketball, and he did it in a quickly, uh, a fairly quickly, uh, a, a, a steady timeline because realistically, Baylor basketball, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they really only started to ascend, like really ascend in the last maybe four, five, six years. So it's really been a quick turnaround, and, and it all comes down to recruiting, of course, right? So uh, they basically the number two team in the country all year, Gonzaga number one, but Gonzaga was undefeated. And all the pressure had to be on Gonzaga because there's all the talk, the last undefeated team, Bobby Knight, Indiana, 74-75 team that that ran the table and, and, and got the job done, right? And Gonzaga just coming off an almost defeat in the final second against UCLA, an 11 seed. And what happens? Baylor comes out like they... Their butts were on fire, and they were playing for their... It, it seemed like, uh, you know, a lot of times when you see, like, maybe a competition series or something for, uh, uh, you know, on television, a reality show where you're competing for money and they're doing it for their family uh, to put food on the table and the money will change their lives. It felt like Baylor came out and they were playing for a million bucks. That's how locked and loaded Baylor was. This game was over from the tip. When Baylor got off to a 9-0 start, they were up 9-0. Gonzaga looked absolutely lost. They looked like they were in a league of their own, Baylor. And Gonzaga looked like the... uh, Honestly, Gonzaga looked like any team that would play Alabama football at the beginning of the year and gets blown out 56-3. Just a team that you know is a subdivision opponent that is has significantly is outnumbered, has zero chance. Baylor's intensity on defense. Every guy was was in a locked and loaded, knees-bent position. They were switching. They were doubling. And Gonzaga was turning the ball over left, right, center. They couldn't get shots off. They were down 9 nothing. Then they get to the free throw line. They hit one of two. They're down 9-1 to one to start the game. It was absolutely embarrassing, and it was like this the entire way. And you've got, oh, Drew Timmy, he's so good. And he every time he scores, and you see him do the whole little mustache thing, uh, like just so cocky and confident, right? And you got Jalen Suggs, who's outstanding, by the way. And then you've got, oh, uh, uh, Kispert. Oh, my God, he's such a great player, and he's a, a sharpshooter. His shot is flawed. He shoots almost from the side, mind you. It is not a pretty-looking thing, uh, Corey Kispert's shot whatsoever. He couldn't hit the bar- broadside of a barn in this game. He looked like he didn't belong in Division One basketball. And then I laugh when I look when um, when Luca Garza wins Player of the Year and, and he beats out... Um, he beats out, I think, Jared Butler and Corey Kispert. Corey Kispert didn't even belong on the same team. The way he played in this game, I'm sorry to say, Corey Kispert couldn't play for Rutgers. Uh, and, I mean, it was so bad. And then you see him go for a loose ball, and it's like a jump ball, and he comes out, like, holding his shoulder, and he's like, I- I- I'm out. Take me out of the game. He did come back a few minutes later, but it's like there was no heart. There was no toughness. Um, Timmy did the same thing. He only had like 12 points in this game. Just 
terribly underwhelming. And, and I kept saying this at the half because my dad, we were in three uh, three pools together for March Madness. I always run one. Um, we get about 20, 25 people in there. It's a good like 400 bucks or so um, that the winner will, will win. And I do first and second place and maybe third place sometimes, didn't this year. But um, And then we were, were in two other big ones. And my dad needed Gonzaga and he would have finished uh, second in one and first in another for big money. And he's losing his mind. He kept telling me, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared of Baylor, I'm scared of Baylor. And he was right. And I said at halftime, the way Baylor was press, they were pressing. Baylor was very much so pressing on defense. And I said this, you're going to wear yourself out if you press that hard. If Gonzaga could have realized what was going on and calmed themselves down instead of going 100 miles an hour and just slowed the pace, they had their opportunity because you saw a bunch of times Baylor could get beat on those backdoor cuts, those you know, those those cuts to the basket on those switches and those doubles and, and all it took was a little pick and roll and some some extra back screens where you're you're caught watching the player and not the ball um or watching the ball and not the player I should say and they did it a couple of times but man and and they got the best part is because Baylor was pressing Gonzaga had them where they wanted them they had a couple of guys in foul trouble and the one guy did end up fouling out another guy had four but they just couldn't they couldn't get inside the paint enough they couldn't really get anything they couldn't make a shot they could not make a shot in this game. It was embarrassing all around, and it was an 86-70 to 70 beatdown. Baylor winning their first title, and again, Mark Few, I, I don't even know what to say at this point. The guy needs to just leave the West Coast Conference. The only way that Gonzaga can compete for a national championship and actually figure it out and win one, they need to leave that conference. They are doing... No good to themselves by being in that conference where you're playing donkeys, okay? they Their best competition is Mount St. Mary's, and they're blowing them out, okay, in the conference torn, uh, championship game. BYU gave them a little bit of a scare before they ran away and won by double digits, but uh, they're, they're, he's not going to win there. Jalen Suggs was the highest recruit ever um, to, to go to um, Gonzaga, uh, to commit to Gonzaga and play there. If you can't win with that kid, who is a stud, by the way, top five draft pick, and that's why it bothers me when I see him uh, get taken out of the game late and he's crying. You're a freshman, bro. Why are you crying? I'm sorry he wasn't the only one, but I'm picking him out of out of all the guys because he's about to be a top five pick in a few months and he will be a millionaire overnight. So please explain to me the adversity and, and what's so difficult in your life that you're crying when you lose a basketball game. It's just a game. Granted, I don't mean to for I don't want anyone to take that the wrong way. It's not just a game, but it is just a game. And what I mean by that is I am as competitive as and I'm more competitive than anybody I know. I'm playing rock, paper, scissors. I want to destroy you. It doesn't matter what I'm playing. It, video games, you're not my friend. Okay. And the same thing goes on on the hardwood, um, on the baseball diamond, whatever I'm doing. I am playing to win and doing whatever I can to win. So please don't cry. I never could understand that. Why do guys cry when they lose? I've been in championship games when I was in high school playing baseball, and we got our asses beat, and we lost a championship game two years in a row. And did I cry? Absolutely not. 
And if you are the type of person that needs to cry, don't let that show. Don't do it while others are watching. Don't give the other team the satisfaction, okay? You do that in your own time when no one else is looking. But the, to cry, no. Be, I get angry and I want revenge and I lace up my boots and I turn the dial up to 100 and I get back to work and, and you try to improve. There's nothing that could come from this loss other than improvement and betterment. And to to learn from these mistakes and and why did you lose? And Mark Few, he's going to have to do some reevaluating himself and look himself in the mirror and say, look, I've been here damn near 20 years. I've been to a title game now twice in the last three years, and I can't win. And what's going to happen is he's going to continue to stay there. And maybe he turns into a, you know, a Tony Bennett type where he finally gets one personally mediocre coach. um, In my opinion, Mark Few, I, I, I just I don't see it. They're out there getting their behinds, like, kicked in. They're getting their teeth kicked in, okay? And I see no emotion on the sideline. There's nothing worse than not having emotion. If you are a coach, and I coach college softball with my dad, okay? If you're not getting yelled at by an official, an umpire, you name it, you're not doing your job. Okay, because officials are human beings and they make mistakes and they make a lot of them and you need to let them know that. And when you're getting blown away in a game like that and say there's a you, your your player tries to take a charge and they call a block, you better be at center court arguing with that ref because you need to light a fire under your team's you know butt and, and give them some some a chance and, and let them know that you care. Okay, it, it's not a good look. When you're getting slaughtered in the first half, and I and they show Mark Few at, at midcourt, and he's just standing there, arms crossed, and he's got like no answer. You need to go into halftime, make an adjustment, and they just they they didn't really do it. They cut the lead to ten, like maybe one or two times, but then it quickly got out of hand. It was back to nineteen, at which was the largest deficit they've had all season. And at that point, you knew it was just over. They could not hit a three when they needed it. And it was just embarrassing. It embarrassing to the point that both teams emptied their benches and brought in the, you know, the scrubs. Um, it's just sad, man. It's sad. And for some of those guys, um, I, I call them scrubs, uh, but they're, you know, that that's going to be the shining moment of their careers, getting to play for a couple of seconds in a national championship game. So kudos to you because that's a lifelong story you'll have for the rest of your life. I can't say that. So I, I don't mean any disrespect when I call them scrubs because a lot of us have been there. Um, but man, it was just a shame because I, I Gonzaga missed a golden opportunity. Mark Few missed a really golden opportunity to supplant his name as one of the greats. But now he's one, you know, he's going to forever be known as one of the greats to never win a championship game. So it was just tough. A um, couple notes on this one. Jared Butler was named the tournament's most outstanding player. He led the way with 22, while Davion Mitchell and uh, Maceo Teague. Uh, Maceo, I don't even know how to say that first name. Excuse me. Sorry for butchering that. Teague combined for 34 points. Mitchell also made the all-tournament team along with Gonzaga's Jalen Suggs and Drew Timmy and UCLA's Johnny Juzang. Uh, Quick thing on uh, Suggs. 
um, besides the fact that he was crying when he got taken out. He was in foul trouble early in this game, got two fouls early, had to sit for a bit, didn't do too much in the first half, but he he had a respectable game. He did come back in the second half. I want to say he finished with maybe like 20 points or, or 17 points, whatever it was. He had a decent game, so uh, I do give him credit because he seemed to be the only one that showed some fire and some fight, but uh, I could just do without the crying, please, and it's not just him. Okay, next thing up on the agenda, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is being moved from um, Atlanta to Coors Field. I don't want to talk too much about this because it's a bunch of baloney, um, but it was announced last week that Major League Baseball would move the game out of Georgia following newly passed voting restrictions in the state. I, I hate to say this, um, and a lot of you will disagree, but um, that's fine. That's why we have um, our own varying opinions, but... I hate when sports intertwines with politics and tries to play the woke police because that's what Major League Baseball is doing. Nobody that watches baseball is watching baseball for politics. I'm not looking to to turn on my TV and, and see Aaron Judge come to the plate and on the back of his jersey he has some, you know, um, uh, you know, statement on there about voting rights or about equality or something. No, we watch to escape reality. I don't care about politics. I don't. I just don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. And that's how many of us feel. I don't want my sports mixing with politics, okay? Sports are very simple. I want to turn on a TV and just watch sports and bet on sports. I don't care for the basketball players with, with the Black Lives Matter stuff or, or any um, equality, a lot of them right on the backs of their jerseys now, um, stuff like that. I, I personally just don't care for it, okay? That's your own right to, to do that, to put that on your jersey and whatnot, but I don't care for it. So that's how I feel. So I could care less. I could not care less about this. So um, I just, I don't get it. I really don't. Uh, Coors will... Um, host its second All-Star game after first doing so in 1998. The league did cite support for voting rights for all Americans in announcing the decision to move the game. I haven't done too much research on this, uh, these new voting rules, but as far as I can tell, I don't see a problem with these with these rules. Um, they There's complaints that they set the, the time that you can vote between 9 and 5, but I know Brian Kemp, I believe, is the governor there. Uh, I saw him put out that they have better you know, er, voting rules than New York even, so I don't know the problem. Um, there's early voting registration uh, that you can do and all sorts of stuff, but because it's, it, it's between 9 to 5 when most um, people are working, they claim the minorities are working their 9 to 5s and can't get off. Um, I just don't understand how that's possible. That is an eight-hour window, uh, and you can literally go vote on your lunch break. Like I don't, I'm not, I, I don't quite understand it. Um, but you know, if those times don't work, there's always another method of voting. Like you're not going to be suppressed in voting. They're not trying. It's not the Republicans trying to stop the minority vote because we know most of America votes. The minority of America votes. Uh, you know, Democrat. I don't see it that way at all. So uh, I think a lot of people are just jumping the gun, but it is what it is. And I'm not the, the poli- the po- uh, I'm not a politician, uh, nor do I care to be one. So um, that's, that's it. 
uh, the All-Star game being moved out of Atlanta. And it's unfortunate for the city of Atlanta. It's unfortunate for all those stadium workers and vendors that, that, that you know, can't work this this all-star game now and and the money that was going to come into the city of Atlanta uh, you know people attending the game um, staying in hotels and, and all sorts of stuff like that so it's it's a shame but that's all-star game is going to be in cores and in my opinion this was strategically placed because they want to see a lot of home runs in this all-star game they want to see the flare and course field we know about the elevation um, and what it does to baseballs at certain times of the year so We'll see. It should be an exciting game nonetheless. Okay, sticking with baseball, some big news. One of the premier star players in this league, Padres Fernando Tatis Jr., has been placed on the injured list with a shoulder injury, and this is not a minor injury. This is a huge injury, and I'll explain why. Um, ten, it's the 10-day IL after suffering the injury Monday, and it was on a swing of his back. Okay, I, we've seen this before with players. The Padres themselves are calling it a left shoulder sublux, subluxation, um, which basically means it's a partial uh, dislocation of his shoulder. Manager A.J. Preller said that he has a slight labrum tear. That's the scary part. Uh, it will not require surgery. So, okay, yes, it won't right now. The problem is he might be able to make it through the season my guess, on I'm just being honest, and I, I'm sorry, Padres fans, you have big hopes for this year. My guess, he does not make it through the season, and he will not come back off this IL, I don't think. Um, maybe he does and makes it worse, but um, it's not good. And we're going to call this the show curse, much like the Madden curse when, if you remember back, a lot of those cover athletes on the cover of the Madden video games each year, kept getting hurt um, and injured. And Tatis Jr., no coincidence, man, I'm telling you, he's on the latest edition, MLB The Show 21. He is the cover athlete in the biggest uh, baseball game release, I'll say, of all time. Why? Because this is a a PlayStation exclusive, which is finally coming to Xbox. And I can't wait. Um, I have Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. It will be day one launch edition of Game Pass. I can't wait. I'll be at work. Um, I thought about taking off, but I will not do that. I will be at work. And from the Game Pass app on my phone, I will straight up hit boop and pre-install and download that game. So it is ready for a long weekend of playing. My one buddy who switched over to PlayStation... um, because MLB The Show was an exclusive to PlayStation, finds out it's coming to Xbox, and he just went on. He refreshed a bunch of times, finally found an Xbox Series X on Walmart, and he ordered it, got it two-day shipping, and he's ready to go. And I can't wait to beat down on some of my friends in MLB The Show because nobody knows the game of baseball better than me. And, oh, man, I used to love playing the show on my PSP and back in the day in any baseball game. The last one they had for Xbox was, like, one of the 2Ks. And I remember um, I would play that, and I'd be, like, ranked in the monthly rankings in the top 100 and stuff. Just, oh, God, I cannot wait. It's one of the most highly anticipated games in recent memory. And I am just 
I just, each day I'm waking up, I'm like one day closer to MLB The Show. It drops on the tu- uh, Tuesday the 20th, so I cannot wait. I will be playing that all day, every day. Um, but back to Tatis, um, this was the second time actually in two weeks that he suffered the dislocation, and that's where the problem comes in. Um, this is an injury that is possible to play through, but it will ultimately require surgery. That's what I was just saying a moment ago, and it will be... The fact of the matter is you're going to be on pins and needles if he comes back because every swing he takes, every maybe if he dives that way and lands on that shoulder, um, you're screwed. And you're going to be bracing every time um, because it does require surgery at the end of the day, and it's a very high possibility for re-injury um, because it's going to be unstable until it is addressed with surgery. Uh, Most famously that I can remember back to would be Michael Conforto back in 2017 when he swung and missed at a ball and he dislocated his shoulder. He definitely uh, got the surgery, and I don't think he came back that season. So he needed the surgery. Um, So not a good outlook if you're uh, the Padres and if you're Fernando Tatis Jr. I wish him the best, but ultimately I don't believe that it's looking good for him. Okay, uh, real quick, Loyola Chicago assistant coach Drew Valentine has been promoted to head coach, making him at 29 years old the youngest coach leading a Division I men's basketball program. Uh, Very impressive. He replaces Porter Moser, who recently accepted the Oklahoma head coaching job. Following the retirement of Lon Kruger, Valentine is the older brother. Um, If you recognize that name, this is why. He's the older brother of Chicago Bulls wing Denzel Valentine and was an assistant on the Ramblers 2018 Final Four team and, of course, this year's Sweet 16 team that knocked off number one-seeded Illinois. So congrats to him and good luck in your future coaching endeavors. Okay, now to the one that just grabbed and ripped out my heart and soul, my New York Jets waiting till the month of April, which is draft month because the draft is happening later this month in just a couple of weeks. They waited till the 11th hour, basically, right, to trade Sam Darnold. Wow, wow, wow. Um, I personally was shocked. Oh, my God. Just when I think this franchise cannot get any worse, they go and trade Darnold. Now, look, the haul that they got for him is as good as you could have expected, I guess, because every expert was saying late third round if they're lucky at at this point in time. Um, So they get – here it is. They get a sixth rounder this year, and then next year's draft, they get a second and fourth rounder. So you're thinking, okay, they moved up in the draft for Sam Darnold from six to three and gave up like three second rounders and whatever. So this isn't as good a haul, but you have to go based off of his performance of late and the last three years as a starter, he has consistently been one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. But personally, I am not buying it. Sam Darnold's been one of the worst quarterbacks in the league because he had mono, okay? He had Todd Bowles, disaster, and he had... 
Adam Gase, who, if you ask Stephen A. Smith, from the time Adam Gase got to New York, was fired from the Miami Dolphins in South Beach and then bamboozled his way to New York. And in his introductory press conference, he showed up high, as Stephen A. would say. Okay, it was an absolute colossal disaster. And actually, um, he's not a quarterback whisperer, as everyone seemed to, to think. Um, we saw with Ryan Tannehill how he regressed, and then as soon as he left to Tennessee, all of a sudden he's a top 10 quarterback. We saw Sam Darnold come into the league, one of the youngest quarterbacks, to I think the youngest quarterback ever to start, um, and he showed some promise in year one, and then Todd Bowles comes in, and in two years, all he did was regress and go backwards. So that is not a quarterback whisperer. That is called a quarterback disaster, okay? I don't even know what you call that. That That is the opposite of a quarterback whisperer, okay? That is a guy that has no no idea how to coach up a, a young quarterback. So I, I just, I don't get it, man. I really don't get it. And now what's going to happen because it's the New York Jets and every outlook I have is a poor one because I've seen this. We've been waiting 50, 60, 70 years, however many years it's been since Joe Namath to get a franchise quarterback. We had Testaverde for a second. We had Chad Pennington, which was close. Then we had Mark Sanchez, which was even closer with two AFC title games and four road playoff wins. The last time, coincidentally, we went to a playoff game. But Darnold gets shipped off to Carolina, where guess what? He gets to reunite with star wide receiver Robbie Anderson and the likes of Christian McCaffrey and a whole bunch of other cool cats and a better O-line than he had ever had here. And he is going to go into a, 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 a franchise that there's not a lot of pressure on him, okay? He's the, he's the definite starter there. They're going to ship Teddy Bridgewater any day. And um, probably Teddy will go to Denver if I had to guess. But... It's a small market there in Charlotte, in North Carolina. He doesn't have the pressure of the New York media constantly breathing down his neck. And he has Joe Brady, who is, in my opinion, a quarterback whisperer. And Matt Rule will be in his second year. And I think that Sam Darnold will be poised to do big things. Unfortunately for him, he's back in a division where he will have to face Tom Brady twice a year. So it might take him a, a little bit. But um, it, it's, a, it's a huge slam dunk win for the Carolina Panthers. And I'm not sold on this at all if I'm a New York Jet fan. Um, and this only means one thing. The Jets are drafting Zach Wilson at number two. And... Cue the memes, cue whatever. They are now going to be the first team in the common draft era to draft two quarterbacks, top three in a four-year span. A disaster. And if you rewind the tape and go back to my earlier podcast, when this draft came about with Sam Darnold, what, 2018, whatever it was, I said I didn't. I definitely didn't want Baker Mayfield. Hell no on Josh Rosen. I said I was iffy on Sam Darnold. But the guy that I wanted, which nobody else seemed to want, was the guy that turned into the best quarterback in that class, and that would be the one, the only, Josh Allen. And I said it. I watched one game of him at Wyoming, and I knew, I knew deep down this was the guy 
for the New York Jets. He had the tangibles. He had the size, the speed. And you see it with Buffalo. His first year was shaky. Oh, they, they say he couldn't com- throw com- he couldn't throw the ball. His completion percentage was terrible. His accuracy is terrible. I watched a game at Wy- uh, while he was at Wyoming, small Division One school, and I saw him throw a 60-yard bomb to the end zone. Nobody around the receiver, and it went right through the breadbasket, and he dropped the ball. Okay, so that ain't accuracy. That ain't anything on Josh Allen and whatever. he He's Brian Dable and, and all those guys in Buffalo have done a great job, and now he's just a freaking primo, superior talent, and the Jets lost their opportunity. So that was the guy I wanted, and, you know, I, I just it scares me that the Jets all of a sudden, like they held on to Sam Darnold, and I heard, I don't know how true this is, I heard that, there was some rift in the coaches uh, in the front office with the Jets. I heard that Sala wanted to keep Sam Darnold and management, meaning Joe Douglas, wanted to move on. Because if you know, Joe Douglas did not draft Sam Darnold, okay? So that's not his guy. He has no allegiance to Sam. So he wants finally his own guy. Well, guess what, Joe? You're going to get your own guy in Zach Wilson. But now... It's all on your shoulders. If this does not work, you will be out of here so fast and your job will be gone. So I hope for your sake you are correct. Personally, I watched uh, Zach Wilson play Coastal Carolina in a nationally televised football game, a a game which featured two uh, highly ranked teams, and I was not impressed whatsoever they tr- they compare this kid to Patrick Mahomes the athleticism the speed you know who I compare him to freaking RG3 that's who I think he could be he could be the next freaking RG3 and I mean that in all seriousness I am scared um I am scared to be quite honest and now I also said that I was not sold on Justin Herbert and somehow, some way, this kid has started to prove me wrong. I'm still not going to say that I'm definitely sold on this kid. I need to see it again this year. Um, but I will admit that I might have been wrong on that one. Surprisingly, these Oregon quarterbacks never really amount to anything. But he seems to be like uh, a hit there with the six pick from last year. But he played at BYU, okay? The only quarterbacks that ever were any good out of BYU uh, Jim McMahon and Steve Young. And granted, they both won Super Bowls, but there's also a long list of guys that were busts out of BYU. So listen, I'm not an expert. I'm not a talent evaluator, but I'm telling you right now, I, I look at one YouTube video of these guys and I, I'm telling you if they're good or not. Okay, so I'm pretty good at doing that. And, and um, you know, maybe if this do- if this does, if this one doesn't, pan out for the Jets, they might want to hire me as a scout because clearly I would I, I know what I'm talking about at that point. But uh, here's here's a quick clip of Rex Ryan talking about um, Zach Wilson, um, and it's pretty it's pretty interesting stuff. He's a big uh, Zach Wilson fan, um, is Rex Ryan, but he has some interesting questions um, about it too. So take take a quick listen. But I honestly believe they're going to hit on this quarterback. I saw him play. Albeit on TV, it's Coastal Carolina in a loss, by the way. How the hell do you lose to Coastal Carolina? But they did. <laughs> but this guy, this guy's a freak athletically. Um, and, I mean, he's got the uh, – he, he has 
uh, all the tools from a physical standpoint to be an elite quarterback in the NFL. Now, all the other things, the biggest question I have is the question that everybody would have would be, how the hell are you not a captain? Like, that's a concern. This isn't Jay Cutler, is it? That's yeah, a concern that's to me. Um, and the same thing, Josh Rosen was supposed to be be good, but we knew that when talking to some of the coaches on that staff that he certainly wasn't the answer. I'm not getting that take from the people that I know around that BYU uh, program. However, um, it's always a concern when your starting quarterback's not a, not a cap. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how I, – I did not know that till this week. How was he not a captain? And I hear stuff about it's because, you know, it's a Mormon school and these kids go on these missions, and when they came back, they let the older guys be the captains. That's that's a load of, 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 of you-know-what, of BS. Uh, other people are saying that's not true, but just because he flat-out wasn't good enough the year before. And, and that's concerning to me. I'm just saying. I'm just putting it out there. But this kid doesn't look to be all that big or, 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 you know, built, in my opinion. Granted, he could hit the weight room. He could bulk up, whatever. But, I, oh, God, I just don't see it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch film of Zach Wilson because I haven't really watched a whole lot yet. I'll maybe watch his pro day a little bit. What scares me, too, about the Jets is this seems to be that impulse buy. It's getting late. All of a sudden, Zach Wilson has his pro day a couple, maybe week, week or two weeks ago. And the Jets fall in love with him. That is a scary thought because Mel Kuyper Jr. says you cannot evaluate somebody based on their pro day. 99% should be their work in games and film, what you're watching and seeing in film in actual games and whatnot. And 1% you're evaluating from the pro day. Why? Because on a pro day, you're in shorts and a t-shirt and you're just doing whatever you want and having a good time out there and just playing catch, basically. No defender running at you. You don't have a Bosa or, or a J.J. Watt or T.J. Watt rushing you and, and you know running for your life. Make a throw then when a guy like that is chasing you or, or Chris Jones or somebody, okay? So that's my concern, that they waited this long to say, okay, now we're all in on Zach Wilson. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's a scary, scary thought. And I am just scared, scared, scared uh, to see what this becomes. And personal, I honestly, hand to God, I really think that Joe Douglas looked at it this way because he had all glaring remarks on Sam Darnold. I think he, he saw an opportunity for the New York Jets to reset, not have to pay him that fifth-year option and then, and then sign him to a big contract in Sam Darnold. And now they can reset with a rookie and they have four more years with a rookie quarterback on a rookie salary to maybe build up a program and build up this franchise and try to build that defense and do what they did when they had Mark Sanchez, who was a game manager because that's what they needed him to be when he was younger and just get to the playoffs with a solid, strong foundation on defense. But guess what? Should have traded the pick back. Should have kept Sam Darnold. Should have loaded up on assets and built a offensive line that was solid and a defense and drafted a guy. In my opinion, I would love to have taken a wide receiver. We need a wide receiver. Maybe we will later. We have a second first rounder in the 2023 20, area or something like that. 
but uh, it's the Jets. I can never trust the Jets, and I just don't trust this move. I, I'll, I'll say this last thing. I really do believe this kid might be the next RG3. He might take that one hit and never be the same. All right, next up, let's talk a little basketball. My Brooklyn Nets, a team that is doing it right and is going to win a championship. KD returned finally after a 23-game absence on Wednesday. He helped the Nets to a 139-111 to win against the Pelicans. Durant, he looked smooth. He looked, oh, he looked so good. He didn't miss a beat. 23 games, that's almost a month's worth of games, but he did not miss a beat. He was 5-for-5 five five from the field, had 17 points to go along with 7 rebounds and 5 assists. Oh, and he did it in just 19 minutes. I thought he was supposed to start this game, but he came off the bench for just the second time in his career, but he was as efficient as it gets, and this was an absolute blowout. Um, Zion still to this day does not impress me. But it is unfortunate, though, because while the Nets get Kevin Durant back, they lost James Harden the game before against the Knicks. When he tr- he missed, so he missed two games with a hamstring uh, injury. Tried to make a go of it against the Knicks. Four minutes in, he had to be pulled, and now he will be reevaluated in ten days. Um, not good. They obviously want to be cautious, ramp up for the playoffs, but still, we have yet to see James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving on the court. It's been what uh, they've played maybe seven, eight, nine games together. It's just absurd. Uh, yet they still continue to dominate, and they're either tied or half a game back from the one spot they keep trading with the Sixers. Um, and an MRI did reveal on Harden a hamstring strain, so again, he will be reevaluated in 10 days. Doesn't mean he'll be back in 10 days, but they'll have to do another MRI probably in 10 days and go from there. Okay, let's talk the Masters finally. Just told you, reigning champ Dustin Johnson, world number one. Don't know if he will stay world number one after this debacle. Um and not even making the cut, but Justin Rose was your leader after day one, shooting a first-round 65. Of course, Justin Rose knows this course well. He was runner-up in 2015 and 2018. He he has now led the Masters four times after round one and six times after any round. You can add one more to both those numbers because he is leading today after round two, and that is the most of any player to lead after a round um, and never to win it. Uh, That's a little crazy. Uh, Hideki Matsuyama and Brian Harmon, they were the only other players to break 70, each shooting a 69. There was a group of four players, including your 2018 Masters champ Patrick Reed and 2012 U.S. Open champ Webb Simpson. They were tied for fourth at two under. Only five players finished in red figures, uh, under par, that is, uh, led by... Jordan Spieth, who won the Texas Open last week, playing great, great golf, maybe the best of his career. Uh, So look for him into the weekend. Um, That was his first win since 2017. So I I think he finally got over that hump again and knows how to win. I think he's a serious contender. Let's get the updated standings as of now because they have updated. So Justin Rose has a one-shot lead over Brian Harmon. Will Zalatoris is now tied for second at six under. Jordan Spieth has climbed all the way up to five under, sitting there tied for fourth with uh, Martin Leishman. Then you have Matsuyama, who who dropped a few spots down to minus four. 
He shot uh, actually a 71 today. You have that uh, the guy said that broke his putter, Si Woo Kim. He was actually had to finish the last four holes with his three wood putting, and apparently he did good. He did okay enough that he's in the top 10 right now. Um, Cameron Champ, Justin Thomas, four under. Uh, Tony Finau, four under. Wiesberger, four under. Shawfully, three under. Connors, two under. Morikawa, two under. Brian Palmer, two. I mean, the list goes on and on, but really those are the only guys that have a chance. Your guys that are, um, well, really anybody that's even still has a chance to. Rom is even. Answer, Watt. Bubba Watson's still in it. He's won it twice. So there you have it. Um, tea times will start tomorrow. Justin Rose, the top groups, they kick off at uh, 220 will be Justin Rose, and then those guys drop down the list. Speed teeing off at 2 o'clock. Of course, I'll be play, you know coaching softball, so I won't get to see that um, tomorrow, but at least I'll be able to watch on Sunday. So it should be an amazing, awesome finish. Um, of course, too, we won't, you know, Tiger Woods won't be there. Uh, we learned this week the outcome of his crash was due to excessive speeds. He was traveling upwards of 85 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. Um, but for some reason, that seems to be the norm. A lot of accidents on that windy road are caused because of speed. Um, and it's really a shame when you think about it because they said the injuries sustained were even worse than we, we thought. So still wish him the luck and uh, all the best in his recovery and hopefully he can get back out on the uh, golf course um, as soon as possible because it it would be a a true shame. All right, next up, Trevor Bauer. um, His last start, I want to say on Wednesday, the umpires apparently sent the baseballs he was using in in that start to the MLB for inspection. Um, they collected multiple balls that he pitched with against the A's on Wednesday and sent them for further investigation. So according to sources, I guess that would be the umpires, right? The balls had visible markings and were sticky. Uh, he did end up pitching six and two-thirds innings in that game, allowing two runs, one walk, while striking out 10 in what was a 4-3 to three loss. Apparently, two um, memorandums, if you will, were sent to um, teams in March about this rule. Uh, MLB will collect baseballs for testing at an outside lab and will track which pitchers threw those that test positive, whether it's testing for pine tar, some other sticky substance, uh, Vaseline, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, So that's an interesting one. The league also assigned compliance officers to each team to watch for potential violations. And what's funny is Bauer has been very outspoken about grip substance before. He was very critical a few years ago, throwing shade at the Astros pitchers for appearing to use sticky substances to increase the spin rate on their pitches because that's what it does when you use some illegal foreign substance. Uh, Last month, after uh, Major League Baseball announced its attempts to clamp down on these substances, Bauer posted a video online criticizing the new policy and so a little contra- you know contradictory of himself there but he he asked the obvious how is the league going to know if the substance came from the pitcher or another player who had contact with the ball and that's that's the key right there right so they might test these balls and say okay those tested positive Trevor Bauer you were using those baseballs but guess what they can't prove it 
So what, they're just going to have a collection and say, okay, these balls, they have a foreign substance. Let's keep an eye on every one of Trevor Bauer's starts. But but proving that he's the one putting a substance on there, it could be pine tar on the ball because the bat hits the ball and has pine tar on the bat. You name it. Could be a million reasons. There's zero chance they're going to prove that it was Trevor Bauer. So nothing ultimately will come of this. So really, I don't believe it to be a big deal, but it was, you know, headline worthy because, of course, it's Trevor Bauer who loves to be outspoken on social media. So he's getting what he asked for, essentially. Okay, yesterday, the New York Mets got one of the luckiest wins I have ever seen in my entire life. And so with the bases loaded, Michael Conforto appeared to strike out looking in the last inning of a tie game, I think 3-3 tie, or uh, 2-2 tie against the Marlins. He appears to strike out looking, but the umpire ruled he was hit by a pitch, bringing in the game-winning run on a walk-off hit-by-pitch. He did get hit by the pitch, however, when they showed the replay. The only problem was, Michael, you're not allowed to lean into the pitch. Take a listen. Arguing. One, two, coming. And the slider in there, strike three. a strike, but he didn't move, and Martin, Don Mattingly is going to come out and argue the call with the home plate umpire, Ron Culpa. That's what the Marlins are arguing. This is a strike, yep. and he gets hit. Look at that. Oh, you oh, can't do that. Oh, you, they have totally got they a got to bring here. it back. Totally have yes. a case. They're going to be called by the umpire as to whether he made an effort to get out of the way. They're trying oh, to man. get it right. Can't do that. I... I, I I'm almost yeah. certain that, New, that you couldn't call a strike. That they cannot overrule uh-huh. this on replay by saying that he stuck his elbow no, into it. No, purpose. but you can call it that he stuck his arm in purpose and he's out. Well, there is a problem with this because, yep, the rule is under under. Replay rules. A call on whether a pitch is in the strike zone when it touches a batter and whether the batter attempts to avoid getting hit is not reviewable. Uh, This is a head-scratcher. I don't know how Don Mattingly still has a job, or, or excuse me, wasn't arrested in this game, wasn't thrown out of the game. I would have lost my mind, okay? Because I've seen at the high school level, where a player on my own team, at least twice this happened to, was hit by a pitch. He didn't make an attempt to get out of the way, and the umpire didn't let him take first base because he said he didn't attempt to get out of the way. This goes a step further. Conforto didn't attempt to get out of the way, but he he stuck his elbow guard into it, and it just grazed the elbow guard. He felt nothing. It hit the guard, and, and, and they win the game. So let me get this straight. We can review whether a home run is a home run, we can review whether a uh, runner is out or safe at second base or, or home plate or whatever, but you can't review whether a batter was hit by a pitch or leaned into it or whether it was a ball or strike. 
give me a break. The game is slow enough as it is. Just add one more wrinkle into it and let them review this. No team in today's day and age with replay and high-res 4K cameras and being able to zoom in to see sweat dripping down a guy's face. You name it. There is no way in today's day and age that what happened in this Met game should have ever been allowed to happen. And it's a shame for the Marlins because it's possible they still lose this game, but they got fleeced. And I made a joke on social media when I retweeted this video. I said, honestly, was that Angel Hernandez behind the plate? I mean, that was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Uh, Just a crazy scene unfolding there in that game, though, to end it. Just unreal. Um, Okay, so that brings us to the bottom half of the show. That's pretty much it. Of course, last but not least, we've always got On This Date in Sports. And cue it up. I really need some music for this or something. But um, On This Date. In 2017, and really basically every every game in 2017, Russell Westbrook um, got a triple-double. He actually averaged a triple-double in three straight seasons, but he passed Oscar Robertson for the single-season record with his 42nd triple-double on today's date, April 9th, 2017. A... a a monumentous feat, in my opinion, uh, a record I never in my lifetime thought I would see broken, yet it was done so fa- so quick, so fast, um, just incredible. The only problem is that's an individual accolade and not a team one, and Russell Westbrook, the way he plays everywhere he seems to go, he always finds a way to lose. His teams just cannot win. His best chance was with Durant when they went to the 2012 finals, but unfortunately, he's on the Wizards now with, a, with Bradley Beal, who was an unbelievable player, and yet they still can't win. Result of that, Russell Westbrook is not a winner. He's a cursed player just like Carmelo Anthony. Just doesn't have it, Okay. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but anywhere he's gone, he's not been able to win. Um, With that being said, guys, that's going to end the show here. Hour five, a little longer than I wanted to go. Gave you guys some good rants and such. Excuse me. One thing I do need to get clear the air and and talk about, I want to take a couple minutes to talk about real quick before I jump off. My guy, Robert Frank615, um... Prayers up to him. He's been going through a serious, serious health crisis. No, it is not COVID. If you listen to the Glorious House of Gains podcast or follow him on YouTube or any social media, he's been very transparent about what he's dealing with, what he's going through. A super jacked um, gym goer goes to the gym two, three, four times a day, um, and he's in the hospital right now. He's down to like 145 pounds, okay, so if you could imagine, okay, um, what he's dealing with is he started off with he was um, throwing up blood, and it was also coming out of his rear end as well, blood, uh, which was a problem. And he, he got to the point where he was in so much pain that he finally had to go to the emergency room. And they ended up finding out that he has ulcerative colitis, which autoimmune disease, much like what I have, Crohn's. Crohn's is actually worse than ulcerative colitis. Many more people have ulcerative colitis or commonly just known as colitis. My uh, dad's uncle who passed away 
last year. Um, he lived till he was like 94 with colitis. So it, it's, it can be managed. The problem is he was perforating, his colon was perforating, and all this stuff was spilling back into his body, which was not good. So they had to perform some emergency surgery, and they removed pretty much his entire colon minus six inches. Um, so he now has what's called a colostomy bag um, attached basically to his side of his stomach, and they had to reroute. So he now goes you know, number two in, in, out the side of his stomach into this bag, and he's been in the hospital damn near a month. Um, and I feel terrible for him because he's in a lot of pain and I've been there. I've been in the hospital, can't eat for days, drink for days. It's, it's painful stuff. And, um, I, I got lucky and didn't have to get cut open. I was actually on the operate in the operating room. They were doing, you know, one final, uh, I was going to go to the operating room. They were doing one final scan before they were going to cut me open. And that, thank God that scan came back clean and I didn't need to get uh, cut open. This was like maybe three, four years ago. So I got lucky there, but he not so much. So they've, uh, they took out most of his colon. He was doing better, but he, you know, was still in a lot of pain. Finally, after weeks and weeks, they, they sent him home. A nurse comes like eight hours later, he perforates again. This was like right before Easter. So back into the hospital for another emergency surgery. Thankfully, they did not have to remove that last six inches of colon. So what they told me, and I'm getting this most of this secondhand from, you know, my brother who talks to him like every day. He, um, because they removed the colon, they said the good thing about that is the ulcerative, the UC is gone because they basically removed it. They removed most of it except six inches that is still infected with the UC. It's an autoimmune disease. There's really not much you could do. Crohn's, same thing. I have an autoimmune disease. Don't know how I got it, whether we were born with it. Who knows whether it came from somewhere. I keep telling my mother from my research that, that I've done that it's linked to tainted like cow's milk or something that caused it when I was like maybe a baby because I hate milk and I I don't drink the stuff. Um, but obviously when you're a baby, you drink it because you're – you have no choice, just what you're given, whether it's from your, your mother or, you know, store-bought or whatever, because um, milk is supposed to be good for you, or it used to be. So where am I? Um, so anyway, okay, so they go back in. He's, he's home for less than eight hours or whatever, back to the hospital, back in for another surgery. Luckily, they don't have to remove any more colon, because if they had to remove any more, he would have had a bag for life that he's going to the bathroom in for life, and that's, nobody wants that. So... The outlook is, and I don't, I haven't talked to my brother in a few days about it, I guess, but the outlook right now is, and he, like I said, you could go on his YouTube. He, he's from the hospital bed. He's been making videos, uh, giving updates and stuff, what's going on. And, uh, he was on the podcast. They called him up from the podcast and, and, um, he talked about it there. The outlook is in a couple of months, there's a surgery. I don't know if it's exactly uh, what I looked up on WebMD, but I saw for exactly what he has. It's called a J-pouch. My one brother was telling me it only came out in like 2013, the surgery. Before that, you would keep the bag for life. So he's lucky that uh, he didn't have this back in 2013. So in a few months, they claim in like two months, they'll be able to go back in and reverse basically everything, create this J-pouch or whatever it is, and then he will be able to go to the bathroom normally again. So that is the hope, um, and you know, I just want him to know if he hears this that um, I'm thinking about you, and you know, um, 
hopefully, dude, like I, I, I know a little bit of what you're going through. My brother told me that you had a, uh, an NG tube into your stomach that goes through your nose into your stomach. One of the worst possible things I have ever had, not one of, it was the worst thing I've ever had done in my entire life. Um, sorry about that. I just opened Twitter because I wanted to check something, and I, I didn't mean to open Twitter. But now, an NG tube, if you don't know what that is, that's something, a tube that they shove up your nose, basically touches your damn brain, and it goes down through your mouth into your stomach to, like, pump you out and, like, drain stuff. It is the most uncomfortable, miserable experience. I had it in five minutes before I said, get this damn thing the hell out of me. Um, it was so bad. Um it was it was just uh it, it was it was horrible 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 um and i i just can't imagine what he's going through to be cut open from like one end of his stomach to the other it's just terrible 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 and i feel really bad for him so um thinking about you rob and you know i hope you get through this um and and get well soon buddy i know you know my brother's holding down the fort with the podcast and 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 whatnot and if you want to support rob you could go to robertfrank615.com and you can purchase some awesome awesome merchandise they have some great catchphrases and slogans and you know sweatshirts and sweatpants and bandanas and t-shirts and just everything under the sun and you name it and uh everything's getting shipped out almost like packaged same day and whatnot because my brother's been doing it and other people have been helping out um just give me one second excuse me i'm gonna end the show right now um actually but um there is i just wanted to say for this weekend if there's one thing if you need your sports fix one uh, thing uh, that I would recommend to watch is it's on Netflix as a documentary. I just saw it the other night. It popped up on my feed on Netflix and I said, oh, what is this? It is um, called Chris Norton. It's, Chris- it's uh, called Seven Yards, but it's about a guy named Chris Norton um, at a small, probably like liberal arts um, college, maybe, uh, I don't know if it's D3, D2, and much like Eric Legrand, he was a freshman. He was one of only like two freshmen that got to play, and he was on special teams a lot. And same thing as Eric Legrand. He went to make a tackle on special teams, and boom, just like that, the lights flipped a switch off, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. They gave him a 3% chance to ever regain uh, movement below the neck, and he defied the friggin' odds, and it's just an unbelievably incredible story. It talks about his life after that, how he got you know a little bit better, gradually better and better and better, and uh, he ends up meeting his wife, and they show his marriage and everything and, and his family afterwards. It's just an incredible story, so if you're looking for something, watch that on Netflix documentary, Seven Yards. With that being said, guys, thank you for tuning in to me. I hope... Um, you enjoyed the episode. I had fun doing it after a nice two-week hiatus. Um, I need some uh, well wishes for our games tomorrow. Hopefully, we can get these in, these things in without the weather, and hopefully, we can get a nice upset, maybe split this doubleheader or take both games. That would be awesome. Uh, without further ado, I am the Pody. This has been episode 135 of This Week in Sports. I am signing out. 
I'll see everybody next week.